Let us pray. Gracious Lord, good to be back. Good to be in your house. Good to be in community together. Good to hear voices singing, praying, sharing, worshiping. Good to share in communion, Lord. Thank you that we continue uh, to navigate these days ahead and you continue to lead us and we trust the paths of which you bring us to. Lord, thank you for your word that convicts us and encourages us, that uh, offers to us insight into who you call us to be and the way you call us to go. So Lord, I pray that it's your word that's heard this morning, not me. Make our paths clear. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. God is good, and all the time. What would you consider to be one of the greatest teachings of the Bible? Any thoughts? That's good, but let's let's speak louder. That's a good one. Today we're going to cover it. Others, prodigal son. Ooh, excellent. Online, you can Facebook or text it or, or pass it on how you do that. Love, good summation, isn't it? Today, and for this summer, we begin a series that covers one of the greatest lessons and richest teachings that I think the Bible offers us. And they all come from Jesus' own words. So we're going to need our Bibles online, time to get your Bible or your devices. Those who are here, their Bibles before you or the Bibles you brought or devices. Let us turn together to Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Anybody have a red letter Bible by chance here? Anybody? Anybody online? What words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are read? Is that the only one? All of them, right? If, if you got all these words of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are read. Hmm, they must be important. They are Jesus' own words that are shared with us today as recorded by Matthew. Matthew is one that's seen as a teaching gospel. He, he's methodical in his approach of how he begins to share the story of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. First couple of verses, what's being talked about in Matthew chapter 1? His genealogy, his lineage, where Jesus came from. We go to chapter 3 and we see his baptism. In chapter 4, we begin to see the temptations and how Jesus carried out his call. And then we learn some of those of whom Jesus called to follow him. These words of Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, you said it already, are the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words of instructions to his disciples. It's these words that he teaches his followers that he hopes his followers will then go and teach those whom they encounter. And they become model behaviors in practical and faithful living. Not just for his disciples, but for who? For us. For all of us. Remember, too, that the disciples that Jesus is talking to are not just the twelve that we think. For Matthew's only recorded for the names that Jesus is called. 
So the disciples that Jesus is talking to is, represents the whole church. The real hearers are the implied readers of the gospel. And you know who that includes? Us. One commentator even referred to these words on the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' ordination address to his disciples. Now, ordination is something that has just taken place at, or will take place through our annual conference. It's how a person becomes a minister. It's a long process. So you begin at the local level, the church level, then you go to the district level, and then you go to the conference level. There's a lot of work to be done at each level and a lot of meetings and groups to meet and interview as you go along. You spend a few years if you're approved as a provisional deacon or elder and then reviewed one more time and if, at, at the conference level. If you pass at that level, then ordination takes place at annual conference. We've had two that will be ordained, one deacon and one elder in the Memphis conference in about two weeks at the ordination service. As I said, it's a long process. It takes usually around eight years from beginning to end, and it's a high time in the life of a minister and in the life of the conference. This ordination service concludes with the bishop giving an ordination address. It's his words to the disciples, not just those being ordained, but to all of us, and not just clergy, but to all of us, of who we're called to be and how we are called to live out that call. It seems that Jesus' words here, the Sermon on the Mount, is a summary of what Jesus' expectations of those who follow him are. And who does that include? Us. The Sermon on the Mount is not a single sermon, you know that. These three chapters are the epitome of all the sermons, all the advice, all the words of instruction that Jesus has been giving his disciples and his followers. And because of the significance of this material, we're going to break it down and look at chapter 5 over the summer and begin to explore what these words offer for us. And so today I begin with an introduction, an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the theme, looking at the content, and looking at three different clues that's significant to why the Sermon on the Mount are important. So I invite you to join together as we read just the first two verses of Matthew 5, 1 and 2, this morning. Please join me online and here in person. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When you start a job, what's the very first thing you normally have to do? Say it again. Orientation, right? Training, getting acquainted, learning what the job is all about. This time of year, I always remember my college summers. One of my favorite times was going to Alpine Camp, where I worked as a counselor. It was a Christian camp for boys in Northeast Alabama, and I've shared about it before. All the counselors would gather for a whole week before the kids arrived for staff training. 
Now, there's logistical and information that we needed to know, but it was much more than that. It was grounded in teaching and prayer and study. It was more about building relationships than learning what to do. It appears what Jesus is doing here with his followers is some sort of staff training. He's called them together. He's teaching them, sharing with them how to pray, sharing with them how to live. More than just what they need to do the job, but how they are called to carry out that call. How they, how they are called to put the beliefs into action. But it's not just about the disciples. It's also about us. These first two verses are crucial. They're crucial and they give us a couple of clues to what's significant about the Sermon on the Mount. When you think about the sermon, we look at chapter 5, what, do we co what comes to mind often? What first comes to mind? Not a trick question. What do you, what do you think of in chapter 5? The Beatitudes, right? That's what's there. It's verse 3. But what happened to verse 1 and 2? We skip right over it. We don't even know it or think about it or, or know what it says. But this morning we're going to focus on it because it's significant to understanding the whole sermon on the mount. Look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. You have your Bible still open or devices? Turn it back on. Don't check the scores. Just look at the scripture. <laughs> verse 1 tells us that Jesus saw the crowds. He went up to the mountain and then what did he do? He sat down. When a Jewish rabbi is teaching and sits down, it's a sign that what you're about to hear is significant. You need to pay close attention. You need to focus in. You need to hone in and hear what he is about to say. A rabbi would commonly wander around or stand in the teaching. But when he sat down, it was important. And you need to hear it. This sign that Jesus sat down would have been a clue to the disciples that what Jesus is about to say... You better pay attention to. It's a clue to us today, too, that what Jesus is sharing in the Sermon on the Mount is vital. It's important. It's practical. It's applicable to our life. It's central to who he is and who we are to become. There's another clue that we get. It's in verse 2. Then RSV translation says that he began to speak. But the literal translation in the Greek is that he opened his mouth. Okay, what's the big deal that he opened his mouth? There's two things that we can gather from this. The phrase, he opened his mouth, signals that, again, something dignified, something solemn, something personal, something important, something real and raw is about to be shared for the listener. It's really also when a person is beginning to pour out their soul. What's really going on in their life and what's really important? What are those life lessons that can be learned by the hearer from what the teacher has to share? It's of utter importance. It's not just about knowledge, but it's real life information that is being shared that will make a difference in who you are and how we live. Jesus, in other words, is opening his heart to those who would be his right-hand servants in his mission and ministry to carry out the gospel. And who does that include? Us. It's vital for us to heed these words and look at them together. 
There's a third clue that we gather on the significance of the Sermon on the Mount. It comes at the end of the text when it says, and he taught them saying. He taught them saying. Do you see the word? All right. Quick lesson. Most of you are out of school. Listen online. Most students are out of school. Some are still in. I acknowledge. What tense is taught? Past tense. Right? And past tense could signify one of two things here. One is that it's the end. It's over. It's concluded. He ate lunch. It's over with. But then it can also talk about a continual action. Something that's repeated and happens over and over. That's what this, is this, that's what this word taught is teaching us. In the sense, the Sermon on the Mount is something that we need to learn over and over again. We need to apply over and over again as we hear it and follow it over and over again. Three clues to the Sermon on the Mount. The word taught signifies continual action. Jesus opened his mouth that the words to be heard were of special significance. And when he sat down, you better pay attention to what he has to say. Two more things I want to share with you that I think are crucial to understanding the Sermon on the Mount before we get started in what the words are. Content and theme. But I need your help. You need your Bibles again. Open them back up. Turn the screens back on. Let's consider what the theme is. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Who was it that was sent to prepare the way for the Lord? John the Baptist. What message did John the Baptist have to preach? Verse 2 is a clue for you. Repent. The what? The kingdom of heaven is near. All right, let's keep looking. Jesus' temptations, Matthew 4. What message does Jesus begin to teach? In verse 17 of chapter 4, helps us know. What's the message? Repent, kingdom of heaven is near. And look at verse 33. What does Jesus proclaim with his teachings? The good news of the kingdom. Jump into, into the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 3. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19. They were called least or called great. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It continues in chapter 6, verse 10, verse 33, chapter 7, verse 21. Anybody have an idea what the theme for this Sermon on the Mount might be? The kingdom of heaven is near. This is crucial. This is important as we begin to understand the Sermon on the Mount and hear the words of Jesus in his own words that we hold this theme of the kingdom of heaven is near as part of what it is. But also look back at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. It's not just about the kingdom of heaven, but the good news or gospel that is taught and needs to be shared by his disciples. And who are his disciples? us too. So some of you might hear kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. 
and be a little confused. What's the difference in the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? And, and generally they refer to the same thing. Matthew seems to use this expression, the kingdom of heaven exclusively, but other gospels will refer to the kingdom of God. Evidence suggests that Matthew's writing to the Jews and in writing, he's keeping two things in mind to them. One, he's reluctant to use the name of God because the Jews hold God's name in such reverence. And also the Jews' misconception of the coming kingdom. What coming kingdom, what type of kingdom were the Jews anticipating? This political kingdom, this physical kingdom here on earth. So he uses the kingdom of heaven reminding the reader that it's a spiritual kingdom we are talking about. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is this kingdom of heaven? It's wherever God's presence is. And wherever one lets God's presence into their life and in their heart. And where is a place that should happen? The church should be a manifestation of God's kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. I sometimes talk about being kingdom builders. Why? Because it's crucial of who we are in our work, in our ministry, in our study, in our life together that we reflect this kingdom. That it can be a reality here at Emmanuel. It can be a reality in our hearts, in our relationships as we seek to faithfully carry out our vision to be a vital and growing community where Christ is transforming lives. So we see that the kingdom of heaven has a present element, but it also has a future element. The future element of the kingdom will be culminated when the Lord returns and his kingdom will be experienced by those who have submitted to his will and his teachings. In other words, those who've heard the teachings and have taken the action to follow them. These teachings, just like the ones Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the theme? Hadn't forgotten yet, have you? <laughs> the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And the good news of what it means to live in it. Again, this is crucial to remember as we study the Sermon on the Mount together. Another thing I want to cover just briefly is content. What's the content of this Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5 begins to tell us who would be part of this kingdom. The traits that the citizens would possess and the results of these traits. Right? We know the Beatitudes and the blessedness that comes from them. We'll look at these next week. But look at the rest of chapter 5. Again, you're going to need your Bibles. Look at the rest of chapter 5. We hear how these citizens of the kingdoms would relate to the world. Verse 13 talks about salt and light. And then we have the interpretation and application of the law, the Mosaic law. And the laws dealing with the issues of the time, such as anger, divorce, adultery, and the taking of oaths. Chapter 6, which we won't cover this summer, but I hope we will cover it down the road, looks at a person's relationship with God. And chapter 7 begins to talk about a person's relationship with others. We've heard a lot about the kingdom. The good news that surrounds it 
and what it means to be part of it. The Sermon on the Mount, though, wouldn't be complete without the end of chapter 7. The man who builds his house on the rock and the sand. We talked about it just a few weeks ago in a sermon together here on Sunday morning. Look at verse 13. It talks about the narrow gate and what that way looks like. And in chapter, excuse me, in verse 24, there's this final charge that is given. Some will hear these words and some will act upon them. Will we gather on Sunday morning together here at Emmanuel? Will you gather on our live stream and hear these words of the Sermon on the Mount and let them go in and go out? Or will we build upon them and act upon them? If you like to look at the weather ahead, anybody looked at what the weather this next week looks like? Eight days of thunderstorms in a row. Summer thunderstorms, right? That's what happens in the summer. We'll have some sunshine. We'll have some good times. But it looks like we got a lot of rain ahead. That's okay. I hope my house. I hope your house. I hope my heart. I hope your heart is built upon a solid rock. For whatever thunderstorms we might face in the days ahead of how we have built and will build our house. That it's built upon these words that Jesus has offered us in the Sermon on the Mount. May we have ears to hear them and hearts to respond faithfully. In the name of God the Father, God the Son. And God, the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for your words. Your words that speak to um, some issues we face today. Some hard issues. Some uncomfortable. Some we don't like to talk about or, you know, don't. It's better not to go there sometimes. But Lord, you think it's important. So it's important to us. So as we make this journey together, may we be faithful in the words that you've given us and how they apply to our life and our community together. In your name we pray.